Hi and welcome back. This is a special edition of Disability Saves the World in collaboration with the research project Bodies in Translation for the 2021 Arts in Society Conference being held in Perth, Australia. Welcome to both regular guests of the podcast and attendees of the conference. Disability Saves the World is a podcast that brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. And I'm excited to share with you research by Bodies in Translation, a multidisciplinary university community research project that at its core aims to cultivate and research activist art. Today, I'm joined by five colleagues, Dr. Chelsea Jones, Dr. Eliza Chandler, Dr. Carla Rice, Dr. Rana Alkadi, and doctoral student Kim Collins. My name is Dr. Fadi Shinuda. Over the next 90 minutes in a conference presentation style podcast, we'll be asking what barriers to art and artistry exists for disabled artists both online and on the ground. This conversation is happening at a crucial moment for these artists whose work has had to pivot online due to COVID-19. In fact, we're recording at a time when the province of Ontario, which is where we are all based, is under a stay-at-home order, meaning that art making outside the home is not allowed. All six of the speakers you are here today are building on each other's separate research and leaning into the linkages across creative, pedagogical, and technological strategies for action. I'll start by handing over the mic to Carla Rice. Thanks, Fadi. It's always lovely to see you. And uh, my name is Carla, and I am a professor, and I'm also the founding director of the Revision Center for Art and Social Justice. And I co-direct Bodies in Translation with Eliza. We've been working on uh, this grant for five years now, and we have two more years left uh, in the grant. And we've been busy cultivating uh, and studying the impacts of disability, deaf, fat, mad, and aging arts using a crypt and decolonial lens. And now all the art we have created, we're um, using it to develop pedagogical modules so that instructors in post-secondary education and in um, high schools across the country and beyond uh, can introduce students to disability culture and disability cultural practices. Now, in terms of my own experience and positioning relative to our work, I've long identified as living with a mental difference. Uh, but it's only through connecting with disability arts and activist communities that I've come to see myself standing kind of ambiguously in and outside of the category of disability. So I sort of put myself in this liminal space. And I do this because while I've had adverse experiences and traumatizing experiences uh, in interactions with the psychiatric system, I don't experience the same kind of unrelenting ableism as some of my colleagues and friends do. So putting myself in this in-between space feels ethically right for me. 
I also want to acknowledge that I'm a white settler. I have Scottish and Italian origins. Uh, I was born and raised in Mi'kma'ki, which is uh, the traditional territories of the Mi'kmaq peoples, uh, one of uh, First Nations or original peoples on the land we currently call Canada um, in the province that's currently called Nova Scotia. Uh, when I guess my, you know, sort of real deep learning about Indigenous people and about Canada's colonial history really happened when I um, met and fell in love with an Indigenous woman uh, and uh, we married and now I have an extended family of Indigenous kin who've taught me so much about um, our colonial history and the legacies of colonialism, which are still very much with us today. Now to engage in a disability cultural practice of self-description for folks um, who are non-visual um, or people who may have spotty access to internet and are listening to this, I'll describe myself. I'm middle-aged, I have white blonde hair, I am round-bodied, um, I'm a white, queer, cisgendered woman, and I'm wearing a kind of very bright and colorful yellow top, and I, I put it on this morning in honor of uh, Perth, Australia, which is where the Arts and Society Conference is being, being held. And we wanted to begin our um, you know, discussion today with a land acknowledgement, recognizing that Canada is a settler colonial nation. This means that the country from which we speak, the land from which we speak has participated in the genocide of millions of indigenous people in order to justify settler claims to land and its abundant resources. Now, over the last few decades, settlers here have begun to reckon with our country's colonial violence um, and in so doing many people have taken up the indigenous practice of opening events uh, you know such as a talk an academic talk with a land acknowledgement and a land acknowledgement for folks who don't know is a statement that recognizes the people on whose territories we hold our event so Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island, uh, or what is now known as North America, developed complex systems of living premised on relationality and animacy, or a kind of belief in the interconnectedness and aliveness of everything. Now there's a theater scholar uh, in Canada, um, he's Wem Hook, uh, and uh, he's from the Coastal Salish people, uh, which who are on the west coast of what is now known as British Columbia. Um, he argues that from his nation's perspective, from a Wemhook perspective, land acknowledgements are always relational, meaning that rather than being bureaucratic statements that allow us to perform a sense of our own political righteousness or our goodness or our moral, our morality, um, or to signal that reconciliation is underway or that we're heavily involved in reconciliation. He says those, that's, that's not the purpose of land acknowledgements, even though um, they have come to signify that in many ways for settlers. Rather, he argues that land acknowledgements are acts that require us as speakers to center our relationships with 
uh, the human and more than human world in the context of this moment. So, you know, sort of following from Robinson, you know, it's important that we ask ourselves, what is my relationship with and responsibility to Indigenous peoples in this moment? How can I help to cultivate better relationships with Indigenous people in this moment? In a moment where only a week ago in the Canadian context, the remains of 215 Indigenous children as young as three were found buried on a site of a former residential school in Kamloops, um, the province currently known as British Columbia. As a white settler, whose family has benefited materially from historic and ongoing colonization, what is my responsibility uh, in my relationships with Indigenous people for and to this atrocity? What is my responsibility to the more than human world um, and to Indigenous worldviews that refer to this more than human world as all my relations? How can I develop and put into practice without appropriating a more relational way of living in the world, a more intimate way of relating to the land and the non-human uh, life that is all around us? So following Robinson, I, and on behalf of everyone um, speaking today, want to honor and pay respects to the people of the Three Fires Confederacy on whose ancestral territories we conduct our work. And all of us are speaking to you today from Takaranto, a city which was built without meaningful compensation on the treaty lands and territories of the Mississaugas, who are members of the Three Fires Confederacy, meaning that they are Anishinaabe people. We recognize too that we have internet bandwidth, uh, that we have internet access essentially, and that many Indigenous peoples in Canada still do not have equal access to bandwidth. Uh, they remain underserved um, and unserved uh, by our governments um, that in distributing wealth to settler communities uh, gives us access to the work that we discuss today. And that's the end of my thought. Hi there, this is Eliza speaking. Um, I'm one of the presenters here today. I'm a white cisgendered, noticeably disabled woman. Um, today I have, well, I always have brown hair. Um, today it's growing out from a short haircut. And I'm wearing black glasses and uh, a top with a black top with pink um, shoulder lapels. Um, I'm a settler who's currently living on the treaty lands of the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee people. Um, and I teach at Disability Studies at X University. And um, the reason that we call X University such is because. Currently, the official name of my university um, is the namesake of one of the key architects of the residential school system in Canada. Um, for a long time, there's been calls to, um, to rename our university to stop the colonial legacy of honoring 
um, white colonizers who, in this case, have, have, have done um, untold damage um, insofar as his role in instigating the cultural genocide and, and as we're told, the, the actual genocide um, to, to, um, to get rid of a culture in this case um, was part and parcel with, with getting rid of people and families and, and, and et cetera. And the excavation discoveries that Carla spoke about earlier is part of that. Um, so as part of our settler responsibility, faculty and students at X University have vowed in solidarity with the Yellowhead Institute, which is an Indigenous-run institute in my university, have called for us to stop saying the name of the university and replace it with an S. Um, on the big grant, which I co-lead with Carla Rice, I lead, um, I also lead projects to explore how access practices in the arts um, become more effective when they are innovated and led by disabled, mad, and uh, deaf people in our politics, following what disability studies scholar, scholar Amy Hamry termed a critical access framework. So through this podcast, I'll be referring to work from both of these projects, the Bodies in Translation project, project, project and also the, um, the Accessing the Arts project, um, which as, as um, we'll talk about is a, is a Canada-wide open data arts listing directed by deaf, disabled, and MAP people who um, must now engage with arts entirely online. And that's the end of my thoughts. Um, my name is Rana Al-Qadi, and I'm a cisgender woman in my mid-30s. I identify as an immigrant of color from Lebanon, and I'm currently living on the traditional territory and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. I have long, dark brown hair, and I'm wearing a black shirt and a pair of round glasses. I'll be speaking about my work on the Accessing the Arts project as a research associate with Revision. That's the end of my thought. Hello everyone, this is Kim Collins speaking. I'm a research assistant at Revision and a doctoral student at the University of Toronto. I identify as a white settler, middle-aged cis woman who lives in Takaranto on the traditional territory and treaty lands of the Mississauga of the First Credit. I have shoulder length light brown hair, which is tied back into a bun and I'm wearing a black shirt. I'll be speaking to two research projects, one focusing on relaxed performance and the other research involves interviews with disabled, deaf and mad artists and how they survive and thrive through their own artistic practices and in relationship to communities of practice in austere times. And that's the end of my thought. Hi there, this is Chelsea Jones speaking. I am a white, queer, cis woman with brownish gray hair, and I'm wearing glasses and a striped uh, white and blue striped shirt, and I've got big headphones on my ears. 
So I am recording in Toronto, like everyone else in this conversation, but I'm also an assistant professor in the Faculty of Child and Youth Studies at Brock University, which is on the land of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. And I was also raised on the Canadian prairies, mainly on Treaty 4. So I'm still sorting out my relationship to the lands where I work and live and where my research is based, especially when all of that happens online uh, from my home office. But I can tell you that I arrived at this research through my role as a research associate at Revision. And today I'm gonna to be talking about some long form interview research about relaxed performance and with artists who describe their day-to-day -day lives as deaf, disabled, and mad culture makers. These are people who are surviving and thriving through under the table work. And that's the end of my thought for now. And you've heard from me. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm an assistant professor in the Women's and Gender Studies program at Carleton University, which sits on the unceded land of the Algonquin Nation. I identify as a fat, disabled, queer settler and immigrant of color from Egypt. I'm wearing a button-down white shirt with a pineapple print. I have long curly brown hair, a beard, and a mustache. So to start us off, uh, I want to know more about Cripping the Arts. After five years of hosting Cripping the Arts in Canada and nearly two decades of research into disabled, deaf, and mad art and culture making in Canada, Eliza, how would you describe the current disability art scene in Canada? It's Eliza speaking again. Thanks, Freddie. That's a great question. And it's one that's difficult to answer outside of the context of the pandemic. But maybe I'll start by speaking about Cripping the Arts, which was a symposium held in 2019 that brought together disability artists, cultural workers, and academics to have critical conversations about the future of disability arts in Canada. And many of us around the panel Zoom call today worked on that symposium together. So through my, my previous position as artistic director of Tangled Art um, Gallery, which is a gallery in Toronto, dedicated to showcasing disability arts and advancing accessible curatorial practices. And more recently, my, research, my community engaged research agenda, which again, I participate in collaboration with lots of folks around the table, which centers on disability arts. I've noticed, and I continue to notice that when we talk about disability arts, particularly with stakeholders outside of this sector. We often stick within the parameters of introducing disability arts, having what we might call disability 101 conversations, wherein we, we sort of introduce, introduce time and again. And these are fine conversations, even necessary conversations to have. But the repetitive call to introduce to, um, disability arts in these conversations pointed to another cultural need, which was to engage with our community to have next level conversations that and, and explore terrain in our sector that's not, not always possible when we're relegated to, as I said, introducing disability arts. Um, so, to so to gather with community and 
and discuss the complexity, nuances, and tensions and areas of growth that we need to cultivate. From my position in the university, I also recognized an emergent need to bring, to bring disability studies perspectives more predominantly into cultural conversations about disability art. I thought this was necessary for a few reasons, referring to the, the conversation that we had at the symposium. I think that through disability studies, we can trace out our history and think about decolonizing disability arts, which is an ongoing process. We can develop culturally competent ways of reviewing and critiquing disability arts, which is a conversation at the symposium that was led by Chelsea Jones, as well as her colleague, uh, Dr. Jean Tankfoot and, and different disability artists and cultural my critics. Um, we can also think, think about trying to articulate a group aesthetic as well as attending to how disability arts um, advance and contribute to the achievement of disability rights and justice. So these are examples of conversations that lead to, to critical praxis, which I think can be achieved by attending to disability arts through a disability studies perspective and recognizing that that is a reciprocal relationship. So there were several takeaways from the symposium, which are key to describing the current um, disability art scene, which answers your question, baby. Many of these insights are shared in a special issue of the Open Access Journal Studies and Social Justice, and the journal, um, the special issue is called Epistemologies of Disability Arts and Culture, Reflections on Equipping the Arts and Can Equipping the Arts Symposium, which recounts uh, key learnings from the symposium, including a discussion uh, led by Carla Rice on relaxed performance, um, a discussion led by uh, Chelsea Jones and colleagues on, as I said, um, representations of, of disability through journalism and cultural critique. Um, as well as a, a discussion by uh, Kim Collins and myself on um, thinking about critical access approaches to enacting access in that symposium. But um, in answer to your question, maybe I'd like to highlight two key learnings, which, which I was am continuing to think with. So we consulted with our community to ensure that the topics discussed represented key areas of community concern at the symposium. And what one such area that was expressed to us as, as one that would be really important to cover was the topic of disability leadership in the arts, particularly the interdependent and non-hierarchical ways that such leadership can manifest. So we held a panel on leadership in disability arts featuring artists who identify as developmentally disabled and neurodiverse from organizations such as Soul Express, Being Studio, and Joe, jo Jack, A. John. And these are all Canadian disability arts organizations. And the, the representatives from these organizations were critical of the Arts Council's requirement that in order to receive disability arts funding, 
arts organizations must be led by disabled people. So these artists noted that this policy is a well-intentioned attempt to deprioritize disability arts organizations that are not led by disabled people, which was a governance structure rooted in ableist assumptions that derailed early, or the early years of disability arts being self-governed. And there's lots written about that, including a short article by Rachel Gorman um, called Who's Disability Culture? So we see this ableist idea that disabled people can't leave show up in, in how early years of disability arts were governed. So th this, as panelists noted, was a well-intentioned um, act to sort of um, only fund disability arts organizations with, with disabled people at the helm. Panelists um, observed that this policy, however, did not recognize the interdependent governance structure that many, many neurodiverse arts organizations um, um, are governed through. They explained how they lead their organization by directing their non-developmentally disabled executive directors um, as they buy funding proposals and perform other administrative tasks which help keep um, the organization going. But these are tasks that the artists themselves are not interested in. They're interested in, in making the work um, and furthering the sector by, by, producing, by producing culture. So um, they, they concluded that because their organizations are not recognized as disability-led, they are excluded from um, disability arts funding. So this is an example of a critical insight that, that points to an, a, needed area, a needed area of culture, culture shifting that can only be gleaned when we have these specific conversations that are led by by our community members. Um, so this, I raise this because I think it's an example of how Gripping the Arts are um, with a tune to current and emerging issues within disability arts and address them. So that one of the, the, the facilitator of this panel um, and PhD student Becky Goldbreck um, wrote about this panel and key community insights in her contribution to the journal I just mentioned, um, Studies for Social Justice. And many Arts Council officers who were at the symposium met with and caucused with the, 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 um, the panelists and, the, and their organizations as a whole to help um, shift the funding policy in ways that recognize this interdependent leadership. And I think that contributed to actual um, systemic change, which supports uh, disability arts in more meaningful ways. The second topic covered at the symposium that I'd like to highlight, and um, my colleague Rana will return to this in, in further along in the podcast, is the role that technology can play in supporting the development of disability arts. So I agree at the symposium, 
Creative Users Project, which is a grassroots disability-led arts, arts sector developer, presented on what was at that point in 2009-2019, their emerging disability strategy, which was an idea for a disability arts platform, which now, three years later, has evolved into their accessing the arts digital platform. So director Lindsay Fisher, who was presenting on this work, used her presentation time to introduce her idea and gather initial feedback on, on the purpose and function of this platform from the disability community, the users for whom this platform is, is intended. The audience was excited by this idea and there was a clear um, there, there was a clear interest that they wanted to be involved as this platform was being developed from the ground up. Creative users is currently working to gather and work with disabled deaf and deaf people's in, input um, into the, the, the into the design of this platform through a series of co-design or what we're now calling different centered design workshops, um, which Rana will talk about um, later and Rana is really leading that, that project. Um, I, but I wanted to mention it now in the context of your question, Fadi, um, because this, this was sort of a, a, an insight that emerged at the Cochinear Symposium, which has since been taken up and now currently in this moment of the pandemic, has renewed and increased relevance as we are all accessing um, the arts online. So thanks, that's the end of my thoughts. I want to um, just jump in, it's Carla speaking, and talk a little bit about um, more empirical research that BIT has been conducting over the last three years or so um, that is focused specifically on um, theater and uh, disability theater um, or bringing disability cultural practices to the theater landscape in Canada. Um, and in two, I think it was around um, 2017 that we, through Bodies in Translation, um, began having conversation with some wonderful folks uh, at an organization called British Council Canada. And British Council Canada is a kind of British government funded cultural organization. Um, and they had been engaged in a major effort to integrate uh, a set of practices called relaxed performance um, into Canadian theatre. And for those who don't know what relaxed performances are, um, they entail making various modifications to performance spaces to welcome in disability and difference. So, um, for example, rather than requiring people as audience members to say to stay seated and listen quietly, RPs invite people to move around, to speak, to leave and return into the theater space to eat. Um, relaxed performance can also include other practices such as dimming house lights, um, providing a chill out space, creating a room um, away from the theater space where people can go to decompress if they're experiencing uh, sensory overload um, or intense affect. 
Creating an access guide is another uh, disability cultural practice that, um, that relaxed performance uses. And an access guide is a document that um, people create um, before, long before an event or performance that gives audience members information about what to expect at a venue um, and in a performance. And this takes a lot of the guesswork out of, um, you know, sort of people's hands so they don't have to wonder whether or how or in what ways a space might be accessible. Um, they can get a lot of their questions answered without having to do searches and do um, the, the labor that is involved in trying to find out about whether or not and how a space is accessible. Um, another uh, relaxed performance practice may involve making introductions to the cast before a performance. And it can also uh, involve other practices such as inviting certain groups of people to um, speak first if there's a Q&A after a performance. Um, so starting in about 2015, the British Council worked with a leading disability arts organization in Canada, um, a, an organization called Tangled Arts and Plus Disability, and uh, Eliza Chandler, um, if you remember, uh, was the former uh, artistic director of Tangled. Um, so the British Council approached Tangled and asked them if they would partner to deliver relaxed performance trainings for people who are working in theatre across Canada. Um, and together they developed um, a whole training program that they delivered uh, in different cities across the country to over 200 people involved in theatre, people including actors and set designers and artistic directors, front of house staff and other people who were working in and around theater spaces. And the reason why the British Council wanted to bring relaxed performance to Canada is because the practice itself grew out of um, the need identified by neurodiverse communities in the UK um, for live theater to be more accessible to neurodiverse audiences and neurodiverse performers. So um, when the British Council uh, approached Tangled and when they began working together around relaxed performance, they began to identify that probably people beyond neurodiverse communities um, might benefit from relaxed performance um, and may feel excluded from, you know, sort of typical theater um, and performance contexts um, on and off the stage. So the aim um, was to kind of expand the intended audience um, for relaxed performance to welcome, um, you know, sort of uh, difference in its many um, symbolic and material forms, differences in bodies, in minds, in cultural practices, into theater spaces, both on and off stage. And to do as um, we talk about in some of our relaxed performance, to let bodies be bodies um, in and around the theater space. So through our conversations with Tangled and the British Council, um, we, by we, I mean myself, um, a researcher called Andrea Lamar, who's now um, living and working and teaching in another settler colonial um, country, New Zealand, and also a disability studies um, uh, 
young scholar called Kayla Bessie, um, we co-developed a research project. And what we wanted to do um, was to investigate the impacts of relaxed performance, um, both the trainings, uh, whether or not they and how well they prepared trainees to deliver accessible performances across the country. And we also wanted to understand the impacts of these trainings on accessibility in theatre, both on and off the stage across Canada. So had these performances uh, or had these trainings actually helped to cultivate disability arts across Canada? And we used mixed methods. We conducted interviews, we developed and delivered surveys. We did an, an environmental scan of um, articles in newspapers. What were critics um, writing about? Were they reporting on relaxed performances or not? Um, we also did participant observation research where um, Kayla went to some of the RP trainings to observe what was happening. Um, and we wanted to also interview not only people who received the trainings, but we wanted to interview audience members who had witnessed or experienced um, relaxed performance trainings. So we did some really quick um, on-site interviews with audience members. And um, we, you know, sort of um, had a number of takeaways. One takeaway I thought was very important and builds on um, what Eliza uh, was talking about earlier. Um, and that was that people really felt meaningfully engaged in working toward accessibility as a result of the training. But at the same time, they wanted more. They had a hunger for more. They wanted to have a deeper understanding of disability experience. They wanted trainings to move beyond Disability Studies 101, as Eliza said. Um, and they explicitly wanting, wanted training to be led by those who embody difference. So they wanted the training to be led by difference. And they recognized that um, artists, um, and um, theater professionals who embody difference um, were offering more expansive trainings um, that um, actually oriented to, dis to accessibility um, as iterative and as integral to the creative process. So they were hungry about learning more about this mode of accessibility. Um, they began to see that access was more than just about installing ramps or uh, using check boxes to comply with the law in Canada. And now we have federal law and in some provinces, provincial law um, that legislate accessibility. Um, they wanted to comply with the law, but they, they wanted to um, exceed the law standard and, and move beyond the law. And they began to see, led by difference, um, that access, um, you know, could be creative. It could be iterative, constantly evolving and expanding. And if nothing else, COVID has taught us that. Um, so, you know, they, we saw there were insights in terms of training, what kind of training should be done and who should be leading the training. Um, we also found that people wanted community. Um, and 
they themselves um, emphasize that our peace thrive on community um, and that we really needed communities of practice um, that were being formalized and that could be funded so that people could engage with disability cultural practices and help to develop and share disability cultural practices um, led, led by difference. Again, in this non-prescriptive way so that we could be reorient to those cultural practices as iterative and as creative. We also heard about um, policy changes that were needed. Um, people talked about the value of RP, but they wanted to see policy movement and particularly around funding, acknowledging that the development of these cultural practices costs money, that it, um, you know, it involves, um, you know, the commitment of people's time and energy and creative skill and expertise. So we need it, we need it funding. Um, and uh, finally, uh, you know, there were insights around theory, um, the recognition that um, RP or relaxed performance exists within the broader field of disability arts and politics, um, and that um, that we really needed to have more um, scholarship on um, disability arts practices and RP. Um, and we needed to um, expand RP research and, and practice in order to integrate it into our evolving understanding of disability arts and culture and into our evolving understanding of accessibility and, as Eliza put it, critical access more generally. Um, and, you know, in our work, um, we have um, built on this first round of um, RP research, and I'm going to turn it over to Chelsea Jones and Kim Collins, who are going to talk about the second round of RP research. But I, you know, I just want to end by saying that in in many ways, this research has has taught me how uh, disability letter arts practices such as RP, assert the vitality of non-normative life. And that's the end of my thought. This is Chelsea speaking. And in sort of the next phase of this relaxed performance research, beginning in 2019, following the report that Carla was just describing, the British Council and Bodies in Translation partnered with three universities to offer relaxed performance training. And this was offered to up to about 270 students in three distinct disciplinary programs. And we called this the relaxed performance curriculum pilot. So the pilot was a direct result of the first report. In the first report, what we learned was that people wanted relaxed performance training earlier in their careers. And so we thought that post-secondary education in that sort of training time for students was a great time to insert that training. So the pilot training centered on how to incorporate RP best practices 
into midterm and final projects that were open to the public. The first was a fashion show, which students later recast as a crip fashion show called Beauty to be Recognized. And this was offered by students at X University's Faculty of Communication and Design. There were also two theater performances of the play Goodnight Desdemona, which was produced by students in York University School of Arts, Media, Performance and Design and a community and student-based choral ensemble performance at the University of Guelph College of Arts called The Singing Spirit. So we found three distinct places to start doing relaxed performance with students and to study that. We observed and we interviewed, we surveyed people involved in these performances, including audience members who came out to some of the theater performances and also to the Crip fashion show. But it's really important to note the timing of all of this research, because before some of the performances could go live, including the choir performance, theaters and other venues had to close because of the onset of COVID-19. So this research is uniquely positioned before and during the pandemic. Some of the performance never actually went live, bringing the RPs themselves to an abrupt halt, even as the research went on. So in the course of this research, Kim Collins and I were collecting data, thinking about the data alongside Carla, and we came out with four main findings about pedagogy, vitality, decolonization, and policy. The first is that there is such a thing as RP or relaxed performance pedagogy. And we can actually enact RP pedagogy by leading with difference. We saw this in the classrooms when access activators came into the classrooms to train students and they immediately drew on their own lived experiences and opted to go off script as people who were either accessing the arts as performers or as audience members or as a combination of both. So these access activators came into the classroom, they named their place in local disability communities, sometimes they dim the classroom lights in order to relax the room, they might tell students about their own accessibility needs, for example, one access activator would explain to students that if they raised their hands, she simply couldn't see them, so she instructed them to shout out to speak to her as she was talking and to interrupt her and said that that would be the best way to engage. And so in this way, she came into the classroom and she immediately relaxed it, leading by example and by experience and giving the students a taste of what it meant to relax a space and also teaching them that this relaxing can happen outside of a theater context. It can happen in a lot of different places, including their own classroom. And this was really relatable to the students. In interviews later, an access activator reported that this pedagogical approach was a way of, she said, performing my own relaxedness by leading by example. So here we discovered that RP pedagogy is an experiential responsive form of pedagogy that is directly relevant to learners who are integrating disability justice and RP into their performance work. The second discovery we made is that it's really crucial that RP maintain its vitality. Vitality is something that came up in the first report that Carla mentioned, but unlike best or promising practices, which is what we came into this research with, we thought, well, we'll teach best practices. 
instead of thinking about how we could accommodate difference in the best way, we had to sort of change our tune to think about how we might enact vital practices and speaking to a strong desire for calling in and including difference as an integral part of evolving context-specific accessibility praxis. For example, if a best or promising practice is to include American Sign Language or sign language of some sort in performances, a more vital way of doing this might be to make time to consult with deaf and aging communities, including deaf and aging artists, to develop a stronger understanding of their own context-specific practices, needs, and interests. And I'll hand it over to Kim for the next points. It's Kim speaking. Our third finding focused on decolonizing RP. During one performance, students tried to deliver a land acknowledgement, but ended up pronouncing the names of Indigenous groups incorrectly. Audience members responded on our surveys, reminding us that formulaic, institutionalized land acknowledgements are not enough for justice-based practice. Participants' confusion about how to include land acknowledgements in an RP underscores the need for relaxed performance practitioners to be in relationship with communities most impacted, including disability communities with existing ties to other social movements, such as indigenous resurgence movements. This means knowing the colonial history of the discipline or art form that RP planners are working within, which in some cases will involve building on long-term relationships with community members who hold this knowledge in order to do better than a standard land acknowledgement as referenced above. And like with the first report, this research circled back to policy. RP training is funded through policy that moves beyond individualized approaches to accessibility that place an onus on the individual students to seek out accommodations in order to access learning. Providing fundings for RP training is one way that universities can support instructors to experiment with developing accessible classrooms as an integral part of the pedagogy. And this approach also allows instructors to link to other social justice movements and approach disability as a broad category that is understood differently in many contexts. And the second report really highlights the rewards and complications of an intersectional relaxed performance. Such a praxis needs to move beyond best or promising practices and develop and integrate vital practices into the planning and delivery of RP training and performances. Moving forward, RP training and the institutions that host it benefit from recognizing the importance of including deaf communities, indigenous communities, and others who participate in local context specific social justice movements. Broadening RP's reach will also include digital interventions as RP is a growing cross-sector artistry, including theater, fashion, and online pedagogy and performance. As RP becomes increasingly recognized as a gold standard of accessibility across art sectors, the iterative work of community-based justice-informed praxis is paramount in higher education contexts that continue to value non-critical approaches to accessibility. So the study really offers insight into the RP curriculum pilot's impact on participants' understanding of equitable praxis relevant to themselves, their communities, and speaks to the value of RP as a living practice that must be led by difference. Chelsea, I'm wondering what barriers to the arts and artistry exist both on the ground and online in Canada for disabled people right now? 
Thanks, Fadi. This is Chelsea speaking. Um, this is a really interesting question because it seems as though maybe there should be a really straightforward answer, but right now there isn't one. We're still in the process of discovering what barriers to arts and artistry exist for people. And this is the question at the heart of a research project called Artistry Under the Table, Deaf and Disabled Artist Livelihoods. And when we say under the table, we're thinking about how folks engage in artistry in covert ways that sustain their livelihoods. So this research began in 2018 with the understanding that although research has been done about disabled people's livelihoods in many parts of the world, there's really not a lot known about disabled people, let alone disabled artists, and what they're doing to build and sustain their lives across formal and informal sectors here in Canada. So to find out more, and this was sort of ahead of the research, we began informally interviewing 18 artists and culture workers involved in the culture sector. We were just calling them up for background information. And the thinking behind this sort of reflects what Eliza was saying earlier about thinking about disability arts on the next level. So we didn't just want to sort of introduce this intersection of livelihoods and artistry, we wanted to make sure that we were going into these conversations with a strong background scan to ensure that, you know, we were really talking to artists about their livelihood choices in a way that wasn't asking them to uh, articulate their experiences from scratch as if they'd never talked about this before. We knew that we wanted to speak to deaf, mad, and intellectually disabled people in a fair and informed way. So we went out and we spoke to people who did the research and wrote up some very recent reportage on disability arts in Canada at that time, including the Canada Council for the Arts. And some of our conversations were with anonymous sources and others weren't. So ahead of the actual research, we learned about five key barriers that these informants suspected were getting in the way of disabled artists' survival. These are agency, time, access to money, state funding, and access to information. So the first being agency. This has to do with the implicit assumption that paid employment garnered by one's status as a professional artist is the primary or only path to sustainable livelihoods. There are a lot of studies about disabled artists that tend to target quote unquote professional artists, or they cover certain groups of artists like disabled artists or women or other sort of identity groups. And here in Canada, the Canada Council for the Arts has a definition for professional artists. When they think about professional artists, they're referring to people who have specialized training, who are recognized as professional by their peers, and who have a history of public presentation. However, many of our sources were saying that they suspected this idea of professionalism was cropping up as a barrier for Indigenous and equity-deserving art groups who don't share the same understanding of what it means to be professional. So the label of artist was brought into question. It was weighed down by traditional understandings of what it meant to be professional. And one source explained that in their experience, it can take a long time to cultivate an identity as an artist. So they explained that in their own arts events, they would often put out calls for non-artists as a way of being more inviting. And following this comment, we use the term artists and non-artists when we eventually drafted and put out our call for participants for the formal research. We also learned that time is a barrier. Artists are working to deadlines 
but they might find that they need to take longer. Maybe they're working on crib time. Deaf artists in particular said that they had very few vocational opportunities and faced barriers in accessing information due to lack of sign language translation, which then impacted how long it might take them to gain professional status. Another barrier was access to money. Disabled artists in Canada have commented on the complexity of the rules and the difficulty that they face meeting funding requirements. This is something that Tangled Art and Disability has researched. And informally, one of our sources in Toronto said that people have trouble attending training and support sessions because of concerns around affordable housing. State funding was also a concern. We began investigating this topic shortly after there were changes to a policy in our province called the Ontario Disability Support Program. It's known here as ODSP. ODSP is an example of what researchers Deborah Steenstra and Teresa Lee describe as an austerity policy with significant impacts on disabled people. And currently still, there's a lot of uncertainty about this policy, the changes that it moves through and its fluctuations, and what this means for funding structures for artists and how artists should count and keep track of the money that they make and the funding that they receive. And the final barrier we found was access to information. Disabled artists reported that information about funding was really difficult to navigate or find. When they did find it, sometimes it was hard to understand or didn't quite answer the questions that they might have. The Ontario Arts Council and other organizations know that people experience this barrier and they feel uncertainty about how policy regulations around arts grants and funding can cause anxiety and prevent some artists from even applying. And they do offer information about this, but not everyone knew how to get at that information. So in short, this was kind of the backstory that set the scene for our research. It's Kim speaking. As we were having these preliminary conversations, we were also applying for institutional ethics approval to interview disabled and deaf artists. We interviewed 20 people in total. The barriers they named to accessing the arts included funding for art making, funding for housing, and the provincial social assistance funding known as the Ontario Disability Support Program or ODSP. At least one research participant said there was arts related income that they hid from ODSP and was happy to have the option to remain anonymous. And I'm gonna quote here, to ensure that nobody at ODSP is going to read your research and target me. Some experienced poverty and struggled to balance art making with survival. One interviewee said, I find it really hard to engage in the art I want to engage in. You either lower your needs for your art or you lower your art for your needs. Others who were not experiencing poverty still described artistry as a hustle for survival. These participants also pointed to cultural barriers, including difficulty self-identifying as a professional artist and a lack of mentors for up and coming artists because there are smaller networks of deaf, disabled and mad artists, finding a mentor and nurturing a mentorship relationship can be a challenge. And yet for those who do receive mentorship, having a guide is paramount to navigating confusing funding systems. And these barriers are additionally discussed in the 2019 report by Victoria Warner titled Barriers, the Local, Regional and National Barriers to Arts Funding for Deaf, Mad and Disabled Artists solutions for parties interested in dismantling them. And in our research, we also heard specifically from Indigenous artists who experienced barriers to making art at the intersections of disability and indigeneity. 
How are people surviving and thriving as artists in Canada, Kim? Or what did you find out? Well, in terms of under the table work, interviewees reported that they worked as crew members on film sets and got paid in cash, um, art sales, running errands on a bike or fixing bicycles, teaching art classes, driving for Uber Eats, sex work and child minding. Additionally, support through disability arts organizations were also mentioned by many. Others cited their own creativity and ingenuity for as a tool for surviving and thriving, getting creative with how they sourced their materials, like collecting porcupine quills from roadkill, um, and self-teaching, like learning skills from YouTube video tutorials. And notably, people also described their communities as vital to their survival. So this meant relying on help from friends, nurturing connections, being generous with each other, and being a part of collectives. We know that in the last year, different regions in Canada and around the world have been going through various styles of lockdowns. Art during this time has become ever more essential in our everyday lives as a means of surviving through the pandemic. And yet producing art has become more challenging. Artists all over have had uh, to find different ways of engaging with the arts. With COVID-19 and things going online in your region, Rana, what does that mean for the artists in the disability, deaf, and mad arts communities that you encounter? Thank you, Fadi. This is Rana speaking. Um, when the world changed overnight in March 2020, many deaf and disabled people had a shared reaction. Suddenly, during a global health crisis and with the cons consequent fears of an overwhelmed healthcare system, deaf and disabled people were made more vulnerable. At the same time as disabled people whose needs and ideas around access are often dismissed as requesting the impossible, we took an interest in how rapidly this cultural shift took place. In April and May 2020, just as the world was moving into lockdowns and pivoting online, Creative Users Projects conducted 10 virtual focus group sessions with 52 deaf and disabled artists, art patrons, and art programmers from across Canada. I've been analyzing the data from these focus groups, uh, so I'm drawing heavily on this uh, work. Focus group participants describe how CRIP wisdom is mapping out critical pathways for living through the end of the world, or as Leia Lakshmi Pipsna Samarsinya might say, for surviving the apocalypse. Many of our participants spoke about how the pandemic instigated a cultural break through which cultural changes could be ushered in. As one dancer stated, quote, I'm really digging not being in pain and not being in sensory overload in order to see a show, end quote. At the same time, many of our participants spoke about their struggles with heightened levels of fear and a profound sense of social isolation during lockdown and how they were longing to connect in person. We are witnessing an unprecedented mainstream adoption of CRIP cultural practices, such as CRIP time, accessing art and art employment from bed, and relaxed performances. There have been little acknowledgement of disabled people's role in developing and mobilizing these anti-assimilationist, disability justice-oriented practices. When we don't acknowledge disabled people's contributions and subsequently do not center disability experiences and politics, 
Disabled people are left behind in a way similar to what Hemre describes of the mainstreaming of access through a universal design paradigm. As one participant stated, quote, I see the ways in which access that disabled people have fought for for years is being co-opted and still used to exclude us now that everyone's in pandemic mode, end quote. When our communities are excluded from the process of designing access, we're sent a powerful message that access is not for us, deaf and disabled people. And many of us fear that crip cultural practices that have been recently adopted will once again be deprioritized when social distancing measures come to an end. Well, with Eliza speaking, thanks Rana, that was so great to hear. And Vicky, in answer to your question about how art, art practices are changing in the current context of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I'd like to return to our earlier conversation about relaxed performance, or as we've been addressing it throughout the presentation, um, RP. So COVID-19 has demonstrated the need for disability arts in Canada to explore ways of developing and sustaining virtual performances in and through digital media. Our research understands this digital turn as po posing challenges as well as presenting opportunities to blend physical and virtual spaces. The British Council Tangled Art Plus Disability and Bodies in Translation have produced a series of videos which interviewed art practitioners from the UK and Canada who are beginning to address the question of how to incorporate RP into digital media. Our relaxed performance research um, asked participants if they plan to deliver RP after the training. This question was predicated on the possibility of continuing with regular scheduled live performances, which traditionally take place with in-person in audiences and in various parts of the world. These possibilities are, are now being taken up, not yet in Toronto, however. While some respondents felt unsure how this could be accomplished, other post-pandemic interviewees were hopeful and perceived this digital turn as a possibility. Some suggested that emerging artists will find ways of blending physical and, and virtual spaces. To quote one respondent, what a better time than now to do that, end quote. And at times, others echoed sentiments from, disab from disability communities that suggested disabled people have engaged in art making and other forms of social participation and cultural making virtually and prior, and prior to, to pandemic conditions. During an interview, one participant said, and I quote, I think there's something relaxed about being able to watch a performance or even like conduct an interview like this, like in, in my bedroom, you know, within, our, within your own space, being able to watch it like in a comfortable environment that you're familiar with, not having to travel or have all that stress come, um, that comes from getting to a new, like traveling to a new space or a new building 
or like a part of the city that you don't know as well, and end quote. So I agree with this person and I would argue that disability communities have collectively developed protocols and protocols borrowed by the rest of the world over the past year to make online spaces more accessible. For example, dis disabled communities have innovated practices of saying your name um, before you begin speaking and saying that's the end of my thought or check when you're done making, when you're done, which makes communication more accessible for blind or low vision participants and those with spotty internet. In disability spaces, if you're speaking, you can share what's verbally happening on the screen, on the Zoom call. For example, I might say um, something like, I see that several people are smiling and giving thumbs up to your comment, baby. Um, another way to stay interactive with speakers is to use your body language, make a heart with your hand, giving applause in ASL, um, smiling or giving a thumbs up gesture in a way that expresses your support or feelings. Talking slowly allows sign language interpreters to sync up with their words and transcribers to follow at a fair pace. Online cultural practices also relax online spaces to welcome difference just as we do for a live, relaxed performance. We relax online spaces by, by letting our bodies be bodies, by inviting each other to bring our whole selves into the virtual room, by saying it's okay to be here and not be feeling 100%. It's okay to turn off our videos and still be present. It's okay to, to moderate how and how much we want to interact and by letting each other know if we need to leave or if there's another way that we can be supported by in our participation uh, today. And that's the end of my thought. Thank you, Eliza. You mentioned the digital turn in RP or relaxed performance, but this uh, digital turn is also broad encompassing many art spheres. With that, we're thinking of um, we've been thinking about this idea of techno access. We're thinking about what changes or technological possibilities exist for individuals with body and mind differences if technology development and creation centered access. What would it mean to think with access and difference in the production of technological advancement? So Chelsea, can you tell us a little bit more about what techno access is? Sure, uh, this is Chelsea speaking. Techno access is a term that was developed at the Revision Center for Art and Social Justice, and it speaks to the ways in which designers and developers consider the complex socio-technical relationships surrounding technology and access, particularly as they do their work with disability and also aging in mind. So techno access draws on and contributes to the important theoretical work of crypt techno science. Amy Hamray and Kelly Fritch offer a foundational description of techno-scientific activism in their CRIP Technoscience Manifesto. And this was published in 2019 in Catalyst. Techno-access is a practice of CRIP Technoscience. 
in part because it pushes back against ideas of techno-ableism, so, um, a concept developed by Ashley Shu, and the shallow premise of barrier-free and universal design that Rana was mentioning earlier. However, techno access is not focused on changing existing technologies by adapting or hacking or otherwise altering their intended function, which is explicitly techno science sort of gesture. Instead, as our colleague Margaret Lamb has put it, techno access describes the development of access first technology creation processes right from the ground up. And that's the end of my thought. It's a lot of speaking. I can answer that, address that question as well. By returning to our earlier discussion about creative users and their digital platform accessing the arts. So as I described, creative users is building a digital network that aims to connect deaf, disabled, and mad people to our artistic networking and professional development opportunities, as well as connecting everyone to accessible cultural events. Speaking back to disabled people's description in the techno design world as extreme users, creative users is instead interested in how disabled people um, design the world around us. And often this, this world is not built with us in mind. Mobilizing this creative potential is actually how the organization got its name. As Creative Users founder Lindsay Fisher explains, she says, our name plays with the word users, a term used in, in inclusive design research wherein disabled people are commonly referred to as extreme users. Our vision was to build a form where, pe where people can share their stories, be creative and explore what it means to be a creative user in a world that has been designed for only one body. We believe that given space, opportunity and tools, we, tra we can transform how society relates to disability and difference and build a more inclusive future. And that's the end of Lindsay Fisher's quote. So creative users mobilizes this vision, as previously explained, through a techno access practice, practice working with deaf, disabled, and mad people to build the techno design of their, their access in the arts digital platform from the ground up through co-design workshops that center and desire difference. Through different centered design workshops, we work together to imagine, prototype, and user test this website. The community of users are not considered, considered extreme, nor as an afterthought to this digital design. Rather, we are looked to as experts possessing valuable embodied knowledge that needs to be centered in this digital design. This approach mobilizes a critical access framework, which offers important insights into how access practices change and, and can become when disabled people, our experiences, and our politics are centered. A powerful example of how disability leadership is changing the ways that we access art and design technology. 
creative users techno access process demonstrates how access becomes innovative and comprehensive when disability is centered. This is an important example to look to as cultural organizations are adopting practices rooted, rooted in disability um, culture now during the online pivot, such as things like live, live streaming to make the programming more accessible to, to audiences during the pandemic without necessarily speak, seeking out leadership from deaf, disabled, and my people people from the cultures from which many of these practices emerge. And that's the end of my thought. This is Fadi speaking. And one of the things that we've had to keep in mind throughout the development of these ideas around technology is um, the intertwined theories of, uh, of kind of the histories of technological advancement and disability erasure. We remain cognizant of the technological violence that ex exists, existed um, against our communities and others. We coined the term techno-eugenics to help us speak to this type of technology. It describes the development of ability-enhancing technologies driven by visions of an improved human species. These are technologies with a eugenicist drive for perfectibility. We orient to eugenics as a logic underlying technology development so as to trouble technologies ostensibly created to assimilate disabled people into normate society. Techno-eugenics exposes uh, that technology's trajectories are not apolitical, but rather wrapped in racist and ableist ideals of human development and evolutionary progress. We are describing a world where technology is designed for and not by disabled people to either eradicate disability or remove its possibilities for disruption. Our discussion illustrates what happens when disabled people design, develop, and create technology in the art-making process that centers difference. As you've heard, we've called this process techno-access. It is revolutionary uh, to imagine a world designed with access as the starting point. And it's already happening as we've outlined in our discussion. I don't think disabled mad and deaf people are waiting for an invitation. They've crashed the party. They know what might become of technologies about and for them, and they think there's a better way. That's the end of that thought. So this colloquium is meant to attend to the critical and often urgent ways in which disabled people are developing new creative tools and critical research approaches to sustaining themselves and disability arts in Canada. What do you envision for the future of disability arts and techno access? This is Eliza speaking. I think it's a great question to end on and I think I would address it simply by reiterating many of the things that we all spoke about through this, this podcast. Um, which is to say that cultural practices that have been lodged in traditional and normative cultural practices, which privilege and prioritize normative ways of experience art are becoming upended. We see this all the time sort of across the, the board in terms of cultural delivery. And as we continue to proceed through this cultural shift as Rana was talking about earlier, we urge arts organizations to attend 
to our group of wisdom through which we have always been crafting maps and pathways for society to navigate crises. Um, disabled, mad, and deaf leadership together with critical access practices can bring about deep cultural transformation. And as you said, Fabi, you know, we're, we're crashing the party. This is a world building opportunity that we have long been planning for. Thanks to Chelsea, Kim, Rana, Eliza, and Carla. We all hope that you've enjoyed this discussion about disability, art, and technology. We hope through this format, you've experienced a little bit of what it might be like to crip a space or approach. If you have questions about what we've discussed or would like to get in touch, please email the research project manager, Tracy Tidwell at T-T-I-D-G-W-E-L-L at U-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Fadi Shinuda, and edited by Yasmina Garcia. If you'd like to ask us questions, email at disabilitysavestheworld at gmail.com. See you next time.